It's a special edition of OMN's Coffee Shop Conversations this time. At the other end of the Skype box is Jack Hireman, an ex-label owner and producer and an old friend of mine. His label was called Clean Cuts, and it is most famous for Dr. John's first solo album called Dr. John Plays Mac Rebinac, recorded in 1981. Jack also produced the follow-up, The Brightest Smile in Town, which was also solo. The two remain the only studio-recorded solo albums of Dr. John's career. The Sundays label is re-releasing the first one in August. Jack is with me to tell the story of how it happened. Welcome, Jack Hireman. Jack Hireman, I, I see you on the screen here, but I, nobody else can see you. But uh, I have not seen you on a screen or in person since I moved to Portland many years ago. And I haven't seen you either. And I've yeah. got to say, I think we're doing okay. Well, we're, we're there and we're working. Yep. I'm working anyway. I hope you're working. I, I find my, yeah, I work. I, I make my own tasks, but I, I have to work. <laughs> <laughs> I can't sit. Well, I just, uh, you know, we, for people who, for, for the listeners, um, uh, Jack and I go back, go way back, and I was around when uh, he produced. Were you the producer, Doctor John, or what were you? I knew you were the label owner. Did you produce yeah, an album? Yeah, I, I, I produced both the Doctor John albums that came out on my little label, Clean Cuts. Back, you know, start. I think the first one was eighty-one, and the second one was eighty-three. Now, when did the label start? The label started in eighty. Uh, you were do you were doing pretty good. You had some really interesting releases on that label before the Doctor John. Yes, uh, I mean I, that's kind of you to say, but um, the second re- first thing was a Jessica Williams record called Rivers of Memory, which Scott mm-hmm. Johnson actually produced and uh, had Portlanders, sitting Portlanders, there. Portlanders, so Portlanders I, know Portlanders know Je- uh, Jessica Williams very very well because she played here around here a lot. Right, and and Scott is responsible for really getting her going recording at all. He recorded uh-huh. her, her first album, and he then he and I recorded a record that came out on Adelphi. Both those came out on Adelphi, yeah. Portal of Antrium, and then uh, a, an album called Portraits. Was that, that live? Which one was live? Yes, live. Portraits I was there for was, that. That was in Flight 3. Yes, it yeah, was. Weird. And... Um, then what the third one was well i'm skipping let's see the second release we had was the phil woods quartet live volume one a great album yeah and you know i i met up with phil not long before he passed away and it was Uh i'm always worried when i haven't seen somebody in 30 or 40 years what they're gonna You know, Um, and he was just wonderful and welcoming. And I when I and he he has a great memoir. And I never I knew that he had forsaken uh, studio work completely, Mm -hmm. you know, because he was really well known for the just the way you are solo and for some stuff he did with Steely Dan. And he was just a. Mm first call guy in New York for years and could have made a lot more out of that than he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never realized that that album that we did with him, that was the beginning of the rest of his life. He was about 50 years old. Mm-hmm. 
And he's, he, he said that album was when he turned the corner and said, I'm going to have a quartet, sometimes a quintet. Mm -hmm. I'm going to play the great American songbook. And Mm -hmm. that's it. That's all I'm doing. That and teaching, which he was always, he was a great educator, Uh um, really cared about it. And in fact, that's where I last saw him was he was getting this uh, Mellon award at the Kennedy Center. Wow. um, For, and it's only for jazz educators. They do it. I don't know. I think they do it in Philadelphia now, but back then they did it every year at the uh-huh. Kennedy Center. And Scott wanted to go, and he would uh-huh. take me, and it was, you know, really amazing. Yeah. Um, so that was the second. That was seven o two, and then yeah. seven o three was Jessica's organomic music record, which I mm-hmm. think to this day is. Uh, one a, a great achievement, and that thing got Leonard Feather's Golden Feather Award for wow. Ranger of the Year, and nice. Bob Blumenthal, who was a very respected critic in New England at the time, put it in his top ten. So it it got attention, mm-hmm. um, and really serious modern kind of hard bop, but beyond that, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, what uh, Sundays, who now have the Clean Cuts catalog and mm-hmm. are going to release it on Sundays, um, they're going to release organomic music on vinyl. Wow. I don't have a date yet, Amazing. but it's next up after the, the first Dr. John. Yeah. So that was, you know, they had to really believe in it to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, what, what made you start a label to begin with? Oh, I always wanted to do it. I always, I wanted to be a producer, mm-hmm. and I did. I worked for Adelphi Records enough and mm-hmm. produced enough, and I produced demo tapes and stuff like that for artists I work with. But it it seemed to me <laughs> that the simplest way to get a gig producing records was to give it to myself, <laughs> and. Um, and, and I, I just I've been so fascinated with what a producer does since I was a kid. Really? Um, oh yeah, very much so. I, I yeah. always wanted to, to know how did they make that record? You yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and I really prefer I just preferred listening. I, I prefer records to live performance in a way. I, I like mm-hmm. the control of it and yeah. the the polishedness of it and the whole thing. Um, uh-huh. And it, it always just intrigued me tremendously, you know. I mean, from learning about, you know, or learning about what Amon Erdogan did, that whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was one of the first people who produced to put his name on it. You know, uh-huh. when we were kids, nobody put their name on it. Right. 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 You really had to know. Yeah, that was, and it wasn't even the 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 word producer wasn't even used. It was usually A and R man, right? Yeah, exactly. Artist and repertoire. Yeah, and and the way that worked in the big labels was, you know, very very different, and really interesting in some ways. And as I've learned, as I I just love the history of the recording business. It's. Uh-huh. Um, to me, it's, it's this lens to look at, you know, the U.S. 
through the years and, and you know right. prior to whatever the 80s um the u.s recording business was sort of it for the world sure you know sure um when i started first started reading billboard the hits of the world were there'd be some local stuff sprinkled in australia mm -hmm. or whatever but mm -hmm. mainly it was it was all u.s music mm-hmm um so, so how how did you see your role when you first when you when you when you decided to to, to start Clean Cuts? How, how did you see your role? I mean, how did you learn how to be a producer? Just by doing it, I I yeah. watched a few people. I got to be fly on the wall in some sessions, and there were some mm -hmm. things. I watched a Motown session, and that guy did stuff I really can't do. Wow, who who was it? Do you remember? Um, I can't remember his name right now. He was okay. a really famous Motown arranger, and uh -huh. he had come to town to do a demo session with a group. And I knew a guy who was who got yeah. He was a musician on the session, and I tagged along. Um, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name because I've That's looked okay. it up and I have it stuck yeah. in my computer someplace. All right. Um, and I, I watched other people too. I, I watched. Uh, People in San Francisco when I went to sessions uh -huh. there, and but as I learned, because I've now produced a ton of stuff, um, really more in in commerce than in records. But uh -huh. when you're a producer, it's who are you today? Yeah, you know, are you taking a heavy hand or a light hand or yeah. a no hand? Um, what you're trying to do is give that artist you know, the freedom and the confidence um, and, and just the backup to do the best they can do and, and mm -hmm. to be as comfortable as possible. Mm -hmm. um, I, there are people who believe in more challenging kind of thing and, and play. I, I don't have a lot of guile. I don't play a lot of psychological games. Mm -hmm. I'm not good at it. Um, it never even occurs to me to do it. I, I just had mm -hmm. it. I just go straight ahead. Right. Um, so uh, to have to have to know that that record is what it is, and because I made some contribution, mm -hmm. I, I can't make the record. I would have liked to have been that guy, but I can't do yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I and I always like behind the scenes anyway i, I uh -huh. prefer it you know uh -huh. i was a sound guy for a long time and i don't mind uh -huh. being back in the room at the console i don't want to yeah. be on the stage yeah so yeah. Huh. well okay so there you are you've got some you know it's a, it's a it's a fledging label but it's doing well it's it's certainly artistic successes and then and i'm sure that that, that you sold a few records with, with especially with the phil woods because he had a name yeah a few <laughs> yeah well but uh, okay so then why did you, how, how did you tackle, you know, uh, uh, Dr. John and why? Well, I'd seen him play on a television show. I knew, you know, I knew he was. Um, we had, you know, listened to Grigri and all that. And um, mm -hmm. but I saw him on this television show that I don't called uh, Speakeasy that was hosted by <laughs> Chip Monk. And it came on after Saturday Night Live in wow. the 70s. You had to stay up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and It wasn't hard in those days. 
Yeah, Chipmunk <laughs> was very well respected, you know, sure. musically. Mm-hmm. He was a, you know, a first-rate light, lighting guy, to say mm-hmm. the least. And, you know, the voice of Woodstock and all that. Sure. But he really knew how to talk to musicians about what they did and not, you know, mm-hmm. he was very intelligent interviewer. And when he got Mac on there, Mac just sat at a grand piano and did, which he, I found it, he could just do it at the drop of a hat and would do it for people, not really as a performance, but mm-hmm. in discussing music. Um, and he just held a, a workshop in the different New Orleans piano styles. Wow. And it was, you know, Fats plays like this and mm-hmm. uh, Fest plays like that and yeah. Alan Sam plays like that. And um, I just fell over. I went, I, you know, I know this guy is, is yeah. a session player and I know that he's well respected, but I never knew how magical he was. He, The best way I can... Thing I could say about Mac was that he literally sang with his fingers. Huh. Um, you could hear his voice in his fingers. Uh-huh. And that's a, a rare thing. Um, a lot of people play the piano and play it really well, but the expressiveness that he... Mm-hmm. Because people would say, you know, well, he's he plays very behind and he varies the rhythm it's like walking a tightrope. Um, he never falls off, but he, mm-hmm. you know, you, he's all over the place as much as you can be musically. It's all intentional. It was all intentional. And it, was, it wasn't just, it was what he had absorbed being taught by Professor Longhair and mm-hmm. other people by Booker. Yeah, Archibald. Um, and it was what he was going to do. That was going to be his style. Mm-hmm. And it was just so intelligent and so he had so much behind it. And when he did that little workshop of styles, mm-hmm. you could really see it. He could have played. I'm not sure he could have played like Booker because nobody yeah. could play like Booker. Right. Um, and he'd be the first person to tell you that. But, um, and you know, Alan Toussaint's, style was extremely clean and precise yes um and you know i i like his playing as well but Mm -hmm. mac had this soul thing in there yeah that was pretty amazing and so i just got this idea and then you know of boy i could make a solo piano record with that guy it would be something (laughs) um because i didn't have very much money and you know yeah a, a big hit jazz record than a bebop record is like was like six thousand copies. It was not, yeah. Yeah. you know, it was not gold, not not even close. Right. If, if it had been a hundred thousand copies, I, I would have been fantastic. <laughs> so, um, I needed to look in a direction that was more known, you know, that had a wider audience. Um, than pure jazz, um, mm-hmm. and, and oddly enough, Mac was very comfortable in jazz. And when I met him, he was playing with Hank Crawford, wow. um, and David Fathead Newman uh-huh. in a, a group that was a, really a New York group. Um, 
but he was totally accepted in that realm as well. Sure. Uh, which is pretty unusual. Yeah. All New Orleans players are think think they're jazz players. Yeah. Well, they all, they all do, and they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> if if they're at his level, they are. Sure. Sure. Um. So and and he was an odd guy that way too because you know he started in the New Orleans sessions late in the game compared to the you know the 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 most prolific recording done in new Orleans because mm-hmm. he was too young to be there at the beginning, but he led a group that could read. Yeah. And that got him hired because they could get things done much more quickly. And he could read. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've never known anybody who knew more about music than Mac. Wow. He was, I mean, you know, he he would kind of come off as very kind of sleepy, but I never saw anything like he he knew he was a musicologist as, yeah. and and he was also an arranger and a producer, you know, and a band leader mm-hmm. and a musician and a songwriter, you know, yeah. um, and a vocalist. Sure. He, he was he really did everything. It's funny you mentioned sleepy. I, I interviewed Mac at, right toward the end of his life. And um, and he was sleepy and he didn't feel like he was it's like he didn't want to talk and he was laconic, if you can imagine. Um, and um, until I mentioned that <laughs> that there were a couple of there was a couple of, of uh, Botanica owners who had come up to Portland after Katrina. Right. And they 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 had owned the, the store, the the Botanica on Broad Street in New oh. Orleans where Mac got all his shit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mentioned this to Mac and all of a sudden, boom, he just woke up and he was fabulous yeah. the rest of the time. <laughs> well, he was he was uh, he could be quite a grouchy guy, He, but he was never. I got to say he was always wonderful with me. But I he didn't take to an endless stream of people coming up to him. Yeah. Um, which is a hard thing to, to do. And so he, he was always guarded and, and would. Unless you broke through to show him that you knew what you were talking about. So how did you break through? How did you get him to do it? Well, um, my dear friend, Michael Tierson, who Mm -hmm. was on the radio on WMMR for 20 or 30 years Mm -hmm. and knew everybody. Where was WMMR? MMR was the cool station in Philadelphia. Gotcha. Right. And Michael came from Baltimore, and I knew him when we mm-hmm. were kids, um, and we're going to the 15 below to Putin nannies and stuff. <laughs> uh, and Michael performed; he was very funny. Um, and so we, I, I'm in touch with him now. We've been friends for whatever uh-huh. it's been a long time. Yeah. And uh, my so I was talking to him one day, and said, you know. I saw this. I, I've always thought because it wasn't like right after I saw him on television. It was probably three years later or something. Wow! That guy, you know, Mac could make one hell of a solo album. And I, I was looking for, you know, I knew the guys at Wyndham Hill. I saw what George Winston had done, mm-hmm. you know, and and but I couldn't do that, you know. So 
Yeah. But solo solo piano was something I was really interested in because mm-hmm. I could afford to make the record well. Yes. I couldn't really afford to make a Dr. John album that was going to be 16. At that point, it was it would have been 16 track, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, no, I didn't have $50,000 to go into a studio or $100,000. Mm-hmm. And so I had to limit my concept that way. And so Michael said, well, I'm going to go see him, you know, this weekend. He's playing here. I'm going to see him. I know him. And um, you want me to ask him? And I went, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he did. And um, his road manager was a guy named Calvin Rhodes. Mm-hmm. And Calvin got back to me and said, yeah, Max interested. Would you come up to New York, you know, and, and meet with us? And I did. Wow. And I met him. And he was very nice and self-deprecating. Um, he also was kind of down on his his luck at that point in the sense yeah. of he made the last records he made, I think, were two records for uh, Horizon, which was oh, an right. A&M jazz right. attempt. Right. And I think he, he said something like the, the day his second album came out, they pulled the plug on Horizon. Oh, jeez. Um, and so, you know, it's that typical, right? you know, the guy who signed you got fired and you went from a yes. priority to an unknown overnight. Right. Um, so he he didn't have a recording contract and it was hard because he uh, I've, I've met a bunch of all those artists who have been on major labels. All they ever want to do is be back on a major label. Right. And so I'm not a major label. Um, And so what I I just sat with him and said, look, this is going to be your art. Nobody knows that you are one of the most prolific session pianists in the world. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows how great a piano player you are. Musicians do. Mm -hmm. um, But the public does not. And we're a jazz label. And he told me, he said, if you'd have been a blues label, I wouldn't have done it. Because I was a, he, he was very, you know, a blues tag on him. Yeah. Would have, yeah. in his mind, limited him. Yes. So um, I just went, you know, I'm going to work my brains out for you, and it's going to be great, and we're going to do, you know, we did a very state-of-the-art recording, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just the best two-track technology that existed at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I also... I didn't want him in a studio because he had been kind of mistreated in studios by producers in the Mm seventies. And I I wanted to kind of turn the page. I didn't want it to be live, but I, I wanted it. I wanted him to feel at home and Mm -hmm. loved as, you know, kind of as emotional as that sound. And I never would have said that to him, but that's (laughs) what I wanted him to feel like. Well, I'm sure you communicated that though. I, I hope I did. Yeah. And so we ran down some material. When we ran down the material, you know, it's interesting how when we're 14 years old and you start playing an instrument and in the pop world and you learn the first few tunes you, you learn, mm-hmm. you remember them forever. Yeah. And Max the material he had without even trying 
was <laughs> stuff he'd written that wasn't appropriate for a big label, wasn't going to, mm-hmm. you know, be mm-hmm. a rock piece um, or a band piece. He wrote a piece for his mother called Dorothy, and he wrote a piece for his father That's called a, Big what Mac. A, what a beautiful tune Dorothy is. Exactly. Oh, oh, exactly. Oh. Um, oh, just break my heart. Beautiful. Yeah. And it's it's a rag. It's, you know, we're, mm-hmm. that's not going to go on his next Atlantic record. Oh, Scott, Scott Joplin could have written that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but he, and and there were all kinds of oddities. It's 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 been interesting to me, and I'm not trying to go. We were there first, but there were his last album, where he mm-hmm. um, is it's posthumous, and it's a beautiful job. Yeah, um, they really did a wonderful job. Uh, I think I think his name is John Leventhal who mixed yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, aces. Just uh, yeah. You know, because you knew you had some material and you had it. Some things were half done and some things were a quarter mm-hmm. done and mm-hmm. some things were complete. And, you know, it was a hodgepodge that way. But he was going up a, really a, a 50s country direction. Yep. And, you know, the great songs of the fifth, because there were some great songs in there. Mm-hmm. And on the rec- the second record we did, he did a Jimmy Rogers song. Yeah. And it was because he had command. It didn't really matter, you know. Right. He could t- talk to you about Nashville guys, or he could talk to you about jazz guys, and he knew what he was talking about. Right. I was always, I always thought he was the smartest person I ever met. Wow. And he probably uh, knew knew a lot of those guys too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and was on the road in all kinds of ways. I mean, you know, what a lineage to be. He ends up. <laughs> He goes to Los Angeles. He can't really break into the wrecking crew because it's kind of set. Right. So he ends up Sonny and Cher's band leader. Oh, geez. <laughs> and the guys in that band would all say he was a great band leader. He was uh-huh. he was a, a great coach, uh, you know, a great mentor. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, and that's how we made that first album. That was an amazing band. I mean, Harold Batiste, Harold Batiste was in that band. Can you yeah. imagine? <laughs> well, uh, truly, Mac yes. and Harold Batiste in the same and, band. And, just, and with Harold Batiste's ridiculously talented yeah. arranging chops and idea chops. I mean, yeah. this is the guy who goes, you know, he gets, I got, what was it? I got you, babe, or something where, uh-huh. you know, I got an idea. We'll put an oboe at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> And everybody, you know, this is the oboe that haunted, uh, you know, the Bill Murray movie, you know, uh, someday, Groundhog Day. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) And and just another plug, Harold Batiste wrote with a a co-author, a a woman whose name I can't remember, an amazing book about his career that was – published by the New York historic, whatever it is. Um, amazing book, uh, yeah. astounding book, b- beautifully done. I, when I first picked it up, I was like, how did he ever get something this beautiful done? Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to sell a million copies. And then you say, Oh, it was the yeah. people in new Orleans who understand how important this is. Right. For our Portland listeners, um, who are Reggie Houston fans, Reggie Houston was in Harold Batiste band in, at Southern university. There you go. <laughs> and, and, and Harold Baptiste, you know, he, he 
part of that book is the road not traveled of should I stayed stayed a serious jazz musician yeah. or should I have supported my family and made a living. Right. right. Yeah. He picked the living, but yeah. he, he did a lot of great stuff. And Mac recorded for for AFO, a Harold Batiste label. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He he had a you know and and yeah he he did a bunch of different things. He really? worked you know. He worked for Mercury Records as a producer for a while. Uh-huh. Um, all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and his biography, which he, of course, you know, he, he had a big thing of, or not, it wasn't always, but he would just go, I didn't like that. I didn't like this. Yeah. You know, when he, yeah. when he stood up at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he said, I know you all think I'm going to thank a lot of people. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and I just, I fell over. You know, it was like, okay, yeah. I understand. So, okay. So, um, so Mac agrees and, um, everybody who knows anything about Mac and has read the autobiography knows that he had, uh, he had, he had problems over the years, you know, with substance. Yes. So what kind of shape was he in around that time? I would say decent shape. I okay. would say, um, he was, the thing about him was he had times when he was, as he would put it, dope sick. Yeah. But he was the most functional heroin addict I ever saw in my life. Wow. Um, he wasn't late for things. He, he made, you know, he showed up and he played, he, he'd been a, on it so long yeah you know, so from 15 years old and i'm working with him when he's like 40 yeah um wow. and wow. and he went another 10 years before he finally woke up and uh-huh. realized you know i i think i think some of his family had an emotional effect on him and it woke uh-huh. him up and that has happened to people about mm-hmm. you know gambling addictions or sure anything any, any kind of addiction. Yeah. Um, and also it, it demeans your health to the point where it makes you susceptible to yeah. um, bad things. And, and he, I mean, his words were, you know, look, I'm not going to apologize for it. I enjoyed it. Um, and having to quit was terrible for me. And I had to go to Narcotics Anonymous every day. And I don't know. Uh-huh. Of course Jeez. he did. My yeah. God, like yeah. whatever that is, number of years addiction. Yeah. But but that intelligence just saw him through everything. And, and one other thing I just mentioned is one of the reasons he made the record mm-hmm. was um, at the time I knew a journalist who knew him named David McGee who definitely encouraged him. But Doc Pomus encouraged him a lot. Ah. Um, and yeah. Doc Pomus was the kind of guy who would speak up. Hey, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. Yeah, I got to meet him once. Wow. Otis Blackwell introduced you. me to Doc Palmas. What a person. Yeah. But I know his support helped. Yeah. And so all this stuff helped. And then we went in and played this. He played this, all the stuff he'd been saving up. Yeah. Well, know. before we get there, so you all the contracts are signed and, and you know it's going to happen. What were you going through like the night before the the session? How are you dealing with it? Well, of course you're nervous. 
But yeah. I had confidence in him, and we had run the stuff down. Uh-huh. Um, so I I I knew that material wise, mm-hmm. we were in fine shape. I wasn't flipped out. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was with Ed Levine. Um, I got Ed to produce it with me. Ed was incredible help in a lot of ways. At the time, it was booking 7th Avenue South, and he Mm -hmm. had worked as a publicist for Warner Brothers. And so that all was a great connection um, that benefited me, actually, because he was known um, and he was a good publicist. Uh, Ed actually has gone on to not – he did a little bit more in music after the Dr. John albums, but he then went to his true love and founded Serious Eats. Um, which he ran for, I think, about 25 years or so before wow. he finally sold it. Um, and food is – I love music, and he loves sports, but he loves food mm-hmm. the best, I think. So was it – so Mac arrives, and was it business as usual? You mean in the in the session? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was. Yeah. We had already gone to, to – like, we picked a place in the Flower District, um, this – space that belonged to a copyist arranger named Don Sickler, who all Mm -hmm. the jazz guys worked with. And he had a really nice kawaii piano. Mm. And it was what I wanted of, we could set up for a two track recording. um, And there was a, a, there was glass and a a room with glass, but there was no talk back. Mm -hmm. None of that, you know, normal technology. And, the flower district got really quiet in the afternoon and evening because the, all their business happened at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, we just went in and Mac knew the piano already and was comfortable with it. That was really important. Yeah. Um, we had the normal foot damping issues, which happened a billion times to a billion musicians of, uh-huh. Yeah. That foot's too loud. How are we going to damp yeah. that? We yeah. need a blanket, you know, whatever. Well, at it least, was. at least he didn't kick. He didn't kick the piano like Professor Long here. <laughs> no, no, he he was a. I mean, this guy at that this point, yeah, he was very very experienced. Yeah, and for some reason, we just, you know, got along. Mm-hmm. You know, we were just a couple of Catholic boys who, mm-hmm. you know, hated high school and, you know, <laughs> um, and and saw eye to eye on a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, and I, you know, I learned so much from I'm still referencing things I learned from him. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, he he knew the archives of of in, in New Orleans in terms of where stuff came from and where lyrics came from and who took what and where, you know, um, mm-hmm. who borrowed what. Um, he loved that. He loved mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, and so, and he had this steel trap memory. Wow. So it was all in there. Mac mm-hmm. doing nothing but, and he would, t- what, again, he said, he said that at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He said, all I care about is doing music and he's not kidding um your days are filled with money matters my days are filled with sound sound and more sound it's a dr john song there you go yeah 
And and so he wasn't so good at some of those other matters. Yes. <laughs> but he was really good at the one he cared about. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, he, he, he just didn't he couldn't. It was funny how he looked at it because he had a lot mm -hmm. of really wild and crazy managers and uh -huh. look, and you go, well, Mac, didn't you know that guy? He said, I knew fine what that guy was about, but I just thought he could get me there. Yeah. Um, yeah. He could yeah. get me the breaks I needed, the gigs yeah. I needed, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So he's using me, but I know I'm, use, I'm using him too in uh -huh. the sense of that's why I went with him. Um, so did you record two albums worth of music um, in, in one? No. In one no. session? Well, the no, I had an option for a second album. Ah. So we did the first album, and it's funny, at times uh, in interviews, Max said, oh, we did all that in one day. No, we did not. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so we did, I renewed the option. Mm -hmm. It was probably something like a year, year and a half later, mm -hmm. we did the second record. Huh. Um, and... What it first came out, it was called Brightest Smile in Town. And I think yep. they're going to reissue that as Brightest Smile in Town on vinyl. Mm -hmm. But they're going to the, the plan right now is to make that a two record set and take there, mm -hmm. there was so much good material that wouldn't fit on volume one. Mm -hmm. Dr. John plays Mac Rabinac and on Brightest Smile in Town. And I ended up taking some of that material and fill it when we reissued it on CD. Mm -hmm. It was a chance to put some of that material on both those records. Yeah. And I changed the title of Brightest Smile in Town to Dr. John plays Mac Rabinac Volume 2 because yeah. that's what that had traction with people. Right. Um, they knew it best. And so. What uh, the guys, um, this great guy um, named Jay down at Sundays uh, has done is gone through. I gave him all of the session tapes, wow. what was left of them, because we had carved out all the masters from them already. Huh. And um, he found some more stuff. Wow. And uh, so I'm. You know, I'm I'm waiting to see what all is going to be on the second disc of uh, mm -hmm. of the second record. But mm -hmm. um, so was was he was, he was Mac happy with what he did on on the first yes, album? Yes, he was. He he. What happened <laughs> over the years? What happened was as soon as he signed with Blue Note, mm -hmm. which didn't. First, he signed with Warner Brothers, mm -hmm. um, and he got signed by Tommy LaPuma. God bless him. What a great producer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I'm going to name names and all that stuff, a, a guy named Bob Merlis, who was the head mm -hmm. of publicity at Warner Brothers mm -hmm. forever, and he's still around. <laughs> um, I, I just read a book that he was publicizing on the history of Ar Arista Records, <laughs> and um, he, I would say, was a mensch, and he went back to Tommy Lapuma, who was then back with Warner Brothers, and said, "You got to resign Mac." And Lapuma said, "What would I do with him? I've already done stuff with him." And and so he played him 
the first out, the first Clean Cuts album. Ah. And when Lapuma heard The Nearness of You, yeah. he went, aha, yeah. standards. Yep. So he did that album of standards with Mac. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did really well, and he did a duet with Ricky Lee Jones. Was who a hit. All, that, all that was over a hit. It. Yeah, it was yeah. won a Grammy. Yeah. Um, making Whoopi. And then he, he made another record or two for Warner Brothers, and then he was in the great, you know, got a, where labels like that were just letting solid people go. Yeah. And so he... That was that. And then he signed with Blue Note. Uh-huh. And what happened was they really wanted him to do a solo record. Uh-huh. They loved the solo records. And and the people around him, some of the really good people around him in his mm-hmm. career, who I was in touch with over the years, mm-hmm. all would tell you, this is my favorite thing he did. Because yeah. it's just so pure. And, you know, yeah. I, mean, I, I can't take my big credit was getting him to do it yeah. and pressing record right um and you know that's funny because i i I interviewed alan tucson one time and he's that he said virtually the same thing about working with the meters i mean uh, he's he's the producer credit on those and he he said all i did was unlock the door yeah yeah well he's a wise man and 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 he would have i'm sure he would have agreed that it was who are you today and Mm -hmm. and and within with the meters, he didn't have to do much. Right. With somebody else, he had to do a lot. Had to do everything. You know. Um, yeah. So, you had to, you had to be sort of non-egotistical enough. Mm-hmm. And there were other other people did it other ways. Yeah. Other people controlled it top to bottom and and did right. a great job. Robert yeah. Johns, you know, yeah. t- tell the drummer to stay home. You know. Right. <laughs> um, right. But. So, so that was how I, I I didn't want to do it that way. Yeah. So I, I Blue, wanted to do it sort of as lightly as you could. Mm-hmm. So Blue Note didn't get it. He, he didn't do a, a solo album for Blue Note. No, he did a whole bunch of records. He did yeah. tributes to all kinds of people, Duke Ellington and others. Yeah. Um, but no, he didn't want to do that. He yeah. did not want to record solo again. Huh. Um, and he was adamant about it because in his mind – you always change. You always go forward. You always go forward. You always go forward. Mm-hmm. So I never repeat what I'm doing. Never, 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 never. That, that, mm-hmm. that If I repeat what I'm doing, he came from the you know late 50s, early 60s, where he saw people just go down in flames by making a great record. And then we're going to try to make that record again. We're going to yeah. try to make that record. Bad mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. He wanted to remain viable all you mm-hmm. know forever. And he did. He right. Did. Uh, right. up, Including the end. You know, yeah. Nobody expected a, an album of country songs to be his his yeah. his, his final studio album. No, and, and then the record he did, he won a Grammy with a record that one of the guys in the Black Keys produced. Where right. They kind of went back to the gree-gree idea, but they didn't really, you know. Right. Yeah. It was sort of a, a contemporary take on that. Mm-hmm. Um, he would never, he would never do it. He would never play anything the same way twice, hmm. and he did not want to be, you know, he was like, and the other thing about him, which was so true, which was he loved his band and he loved arranging, and it, and his mm-hmm. band members would come and go to some degree with mm-hmm. him, but he, 
he he loved the rain for him to be out there without a rhythm section mm-hmm. and without you know whatever instrumental combination he imagined for what he was doing mm-hmm. that it was like what am i doing i yeah. did that once right. i can do that he said i'm scared i you know he said i'm worried when i met him he was i've i've never wanted to do this because uh i don't want to end up in a holiday inn right you know in a, in a lounge playing the piano right. and that's but i i just had to go look <laughs> this is going to be your art record. Yeah. This is going to be, you know, this is going to open up a side of you that, you know, people don't, the general audience doesn't know and they need to know it, Mac. Yeah. Because you look at what you, you know, you've done all this stuff, but people just don't, musicians did. Mm-hmm. When, you know, when I had my, did, was working, you know, and I finally had my own studio after I'd left the record business mm-hmm. pretty much. You know, sometimes we would get celebrity musicians coming in to mm-hmm. do a vocal for a commercial, whatever. They mm-hmm. would look at that stuff on the wall and go, oh, you did that. <laughs> you know, well, it really helped me. Yeah, because sure. They, they, they were like, OK, these are going to be a bunch of ad kind of maybe jerks. Been there. And, and it was like, <laughs> no, we're just we're not ad guys. We're suppliers. Yeah, we're here to, to do a good job and to make you happy and to get you through this. Yeah. Because sometimes they'd come in and they wouldn't have been, they were, they were not in voice as they should be, you know. Yeah. They were, you know, you did this record 30 years ago. We want to do our own version of it. Great, you know. <laughs> so um, it, it took a lot of patience and coaching, but the only way I knew how to get through it was to put my arm around people and just go, look, we're going to take the best care of you we can. Yeah, yeah. So you must have had a great sense of accomplishment when you when when those sessions were over and, 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 and do you remember like like walking out with the tapes at some point and, and I bringing was them home? when I walked out with the tapes yeah and it was funny you know I went home and put it together and I went to him and said okay I've assembled it I've made picks both of you know sometimes of takes sometimes of songs. Mm-hmm. You know pieces, and uh, do you want to hear? He went now. Huh. He, he, he said that's your job. Huh. And what he, I, what I learned, he, he had a structural idea of how it went. And the yeah. producer's the producer. And in this case, he is the artist. He's not the producer. He could have been the producer, but uh-huh. he's not. And yeah. and if he's not, he's not going to step in the producer's role uh-huh. he's not going to step in the art director's role it was just you know huh. so um, you chose the sequencing oh yeah completely huh? completely huh? um huh. no question huh. um and i mean it was sensitive to him i mean it, sure of course you know, everything was he would have had a hard i mean he could have argued with the order but I don't think he would have argued much with the choices. Right. Um, right. But he didn't argue with the order, He was right? just good all the time. Yeah. You know, that's why he works so much. That's why, you know, you see mm-hmm. 
I'm sitting watching the Super Bowl, and Aretha Franklin is good. And who's the piano player? It's Mac. It's Mac. Yes. You know, <laughs> I take my daughter to see 101 Dalmatians, and as yeah. we walk out, I hear, you know, Cruella Deville. Who's that? Oh, that's Mac. <laughs> you know, he was a loved, loved guy by yeah. a lot more people than me. Yeah. Um, wow. By everybody, he was he was a really great human being. You know, and yeah, he could get a little prickly sometimes, but. Um, you know, so it, it saddened this... me some that he couldn't. But people don't do that. People don't mm-hmm. republish. You know, they don't talk about reissues of their records. They talk. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. It was, but I understood completely. And you know, and he explained it to me, and I understood it. And we just, I, I kept on visiting him whenever I could because uh-huh. he was a great guy, and um, I liked him. Was was the re-release, the, the upcoming re-release, was, did he know about that before he died? No. Oh, no. I, um, I had not yeah. sold the label. I mean, he died, I think it was, what, in 2019? Something like that, yeah. And I only decided to sell the label in January of 2022. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so yeah. when will this when will this be coming out? August. Right. I think August tenth is the release date. That's my birthday. Hey, well that'll be <laughs> easy to remember. And is it is it uh, vinyl only? I don't know what they're going to do with the CDs. I yeah. gave them my stock, and mm-hmm. uh, I hope they sell it off because it it would just be ecologically sad not to. Right. Um. But right now they're they're concentrating on vinyl. Vinyl mm-hmm. is the thing, you know. The the biggest problem for people releasing vinyl is getting enough vinyl. Right now, will it be vinyl of the original vinyl edition or the second uh, the, the the CD vinyl, the CD edition? Original vinyl edition. It'll okay. be yeah. you know, and it's going to look the same. And they uh-huh. asked me to write some notes and. So they're they're doing a gatefold cover. So when you look at it, nice. it's going to look exactly the same as the original record look. Wow. But then if you open it up, there's a lot of what we've been talking about. That's what I wrote mm-hmm. of you know just yeah. the story of how it got made. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see my old friend Tom. <laughs> been a long time. What a great story. What a great yeah, story. It, it really ended up quite, poet, you know, and it did what he wanted it to do. When when I went to see him, he was touring with Ringo's All-Stars at Meriwether Post Pavilion <laughs> in Columbia, where yeah. I had been a couple of dozen times. And, in fact, do you remember that time when when they had the riots and we all went out there and met sure. with them? and. Got sure. the free concert. It was a free John Sebastian concert and all that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But I went backstage and he was literally kissing and hugging me. And uh-huh. it was because in a sentimental mood, that Warner Brothers album had hit number one on the jazz chart that week. That's amazing. And so it was OK. Yeah. It took six years. Yeah. But. You're back on a major label. You're yeah. back where you belong. Ha! 
And, and, and Tommy LaPuma had given an interview in Billboard saying that whole story of Merlis brought it to him and um, mm-hmm. he went, what am I going to do? He huh. loved Mac, but it was I've already yeah. done stuff with him. He'd done two yeah. A&M records and some yeah. other stuff. And this light went off on, you know, the nearness of you and all that. So um, he knew the path that mm-hmm. had led him back to Warner. It's um, funny that it's funny to do with yeah, it. Yeah, it's funny that you uh, th- that uh, it was during the, the Ringo tour because I was doing a network radio talk show out of Flight Three, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at the time, and did a did a phoner with Mac after the I guess he I guess the, it was at the the Beacon, and uh, oh. he he had just come off that gig uh, when when I when I talked to him. I, I don't have a, I don't have a tape of that. I wish I did. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, Rick Danko was on that tour. Yeah. Uh, and Jim <laughs> Keltner was the other drummer with Ringo. And, uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, it, it was quite a show, quite quite a group. I think Joe Walsh was in that band. Really? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there have been a million, or not a million, but many, many people have passed through the All-Stars over the years. But the, yeah. the only time I ever saw them was that, and I'm pretty sure Joe Walsh was there. Jeez. <laughs> so... Yeah, Mag wasn't feeling any pain during that interview. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> but he did a good job, didn't he? Of course he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, I, I remember mean, one time. Know, Mac was 77 when he passed away, and it, it's a great <laughs> loss, but yeah, I was, you know, <laughs> that was he, he, he was not easy on himself in his life physically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we got great pictures of him the last time he played the Waterfront Blues Festival here, which I think I'll put up with this uh, when I put this up. I use one of those pictures. They were good pictures. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. I, I look forward to seeing the pictures. I'll yeah. get on the site and check it. All right. Well, geez, what a great story. Thank you so Thank much, you. Jack. It's great to oh. see you. It's great to talk with you. It's been a long time, and uh, we, let's, let's not let's not make it another 30 years, huh? <laughs> But I do, have to, I do have to end this the way we always end these things, by saying, that's entertainment. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs>